Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Assembly Online. My name is David, and I serve as lead pastor at Trinity. And I just want to start by wishing you and your family a wonderful Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Wherever you are, I hope that you're able to celebrate together the things that matter most and that you're safe. And uh, we're just uh, praying for all of you, believing that God is going to bring us through this time. And what a wonderful morning to remember some powerful truths that can really help us right now. You know, in this season, I've been learning some things. You've probably been learning some things about yourself and maybe things about the people that you live with because you're spending so much time with them. But uh, I remember when the news of COVID-19 first was uh, breaking, uh, we were discussing as a family what we should begin doing to stay safe. And our youngest daughter, Maddie, has some underlying health conditions, and so we had some real concerns for her. And I remember coming home one time, and I thought I had a great idea. And so I said to my wife, Erin, uh, you know, when you and I come home from being out and doing things, I think that when we get home, the first thing we should do is wash our hands, like they're saying. Just in case something happened out there, let's wash our hands when we first get in the house. And my wife looked at me, and she laughed, and she was like, David, I do that already, like all the time. Anytime I'm out in public, when I come home, the first thing I do is wash my hands. And I realized that the sanitary uh, habits of my wife were much superior to my own. Something else I've learned during this season is what dry skin feels like. Because I wasn't a maybe very good hand washer or certainly wasn't washing my hands as much as my wife does, I never had dealt with dry skin before. And about two weeks into washing my hands, I was showing my hands and my knuckles to my wife. And I was like, what's going on to my hand or going on with my hands? And she said, well, that's what dry skin feels like. So you've probably got some dry skin on your hands as well. We're all learning some things. And This morning, I'm hoping that we can take the next 20, 25 minutes and learn something about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, if you're a Christian, maybe you think, well, I've heard it all. I I know exactly what Pastor Dave's going to talk about. It's Easter Sunday. It's the resurrection. Well, maybe there's something new for you to learn this morning. And if you're not a Christian and you're just kind of checking this out, maybe you feel like, I've heard enough. Uh, There's no way this possibly happened. There's no way that this has any impact on my life. And I want to invite you just to lean in and consider that maybe there is still something to learn. As we look at the resurrection together this morning, I want to use an outline that I've used in the past that really helps me approach and understand uh, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the problem with the resurrection. Then we're going to look at the purpose of the resurrection, and we're going to finish by talking about the power in the resurrection, the problem with, the purpose of, and the power in. The problem with the resurrection. I don't know what you're eating today, but I'm making a standing rib roast. It's one of my favorite things in the world to make, and the first time I made it, I overcooked it. Now, for me, overcooking something is going beyond medium rare. I'm medium rare. Some meats I prefer rare. But once you get into medium and medium well, if you start ordering your steak well done, in my opinion, you just might as well order chicken because that's just my preference. And I remember the first time I got a rib roast, I overcooked it, and I was heartbroken. And even though it was wrong, it wasn't that big of a deal. The, the meat still tasted good. You know, in life, there's some things, if you're wrong about them, they're, it's not that big of a deal. But there are some things in life that if you're wrong about them, It is a really big deal, like financial investments or major relationship decisions or rooting for the Red Sox. These are things that would be really wrong. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, being wrong is a big deal. 
About 20 years after the event in question, a man named Paul, who first persecuted Christians but became one of the leaders of the Christians, he explains how big of a deal it is in a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, says this, that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost, And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Other translations say that if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we of all people are most miserable. And the problem with the resurrection is that it's one of two things. It's either the greatest hoax, the greatest joke, the greatest scam ever played on humanity. It's either the greatest hoax or it's the greatest hope. Everything about the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection, rises and falls on this historical event. Pastor, author Timothy Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he says it this way. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Let me quickly highlight for us this morning three things that give me confidence in the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Three things I look to to help me navigate the problem of the resurrection. And the first thing is the Gospels. The Gospels. Of course, the Gospels in the Scriptures are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you look at the timing of the Gospels, because all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all give accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written first and that it was circulating and being read and being shared amongst people about 20 to 30 years after the resurrection. The Gospels were widely known and widely accepted at that point. The people who saw Jesus would have still, some of them, have been alive. What's the point? The point is this, that 20 to 30 years is simply not enough time to create a legend to spin a piece of fiction this sensational that there was a man who lived and was crucified and rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of people, you would need hundreds or thousands of years to create a legend like that and for it to be widely accepted. But within 20 to 30 years, people were widely accepting and reading and sharing these gospel accounts. There's also the style within which these uh, gospel accounts are, are written. The gospels, if you read them, they read like eyewitness accounts. C.S. Lewis, an English professor from Oxford and an author, he said this. He said, either the Gospels are firsthand eyewitness reportage or these first century writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anticipated a style of writing that wouldn't exist for another 17 to 1800 years. What does he mean? If you read the Gospels, there's so many unnecessary details, so many things that don't actually advance the plot of the story. The literary genre of modern detailed fiction didn't exist when the Gospels were written. Fiction back then didn't include unnecessary details. If the detail didn't help move the story forward, they wouldn't write it down. And so when you read the Gospels, these are clearly not written as fiction. These are written as eyewitness reportage. But then the other thing that I think of when I look at the Gospels is the content of the Gospels. If you've been with us in this series, The Final Hours, Isn't it obvious that the disciples didn't do very well here at the end of Jesus' life? 
that they denied him, betrayed him, ran from him, abandoned him. We're going to see that they, they didn't even believe that the resurrection had happened. The Gospels often make the disciples look foolish. And these same disciples became the leaders of the early church. This is counterproductive content if you're trying to advance a movement. If you're trying to make Christianity happen, if you're trying to manufacture a religion, you would never write gospel accounts that make the leaders of the movement look so foolish and fail so often. Even a detail in the resurrection account, like the woman arriving to the tomb first, you would never include that unless it actually happened. Because in this time and in this place, the testimony of women wasn't even admissible in court, Jewish court or Roman court. If you were making up the story, you would never have the women be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only reason you would include that detail is if it actually happened. So we look at the timing, the style, and the content of the Gospels. The best explanation for these accounts is that they accurately describe real historical events. But then also, let's look at the disciples. When it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus, I already referenced this, but the disciples, on one hand, they were scared as anyone, and on the other hand, they were as surprised as anyone. They were running, hiding, denying. They were not courageous. They were not brave. Then they were surprised when it happened. They were doubters, skeptics. They never saw it coming. They were not the masterminds behind some sort of plan. But look who they became. And history tells us that these disciples became bold, risk-taking world changers who traveled the known world, turning it upside down, and they were killed, each of them, for their faith. And as they were being killed, they were going to their death, standing by their claim that Jesus Christ had, in fact, died and rose again. Now, if this whole thing was a hoax, they, of all people, would have known. The disciples would have been the ones who perpetuated and even originated the hoax. And people don't willingly, knowingly give their lives for something that they are that they they're on the inside of that they know to be a lie at some point one of these disciples when they're about to be burned at a stake or crucified they would have said no it's it's a joke we made it up he he didn't rise from the dead to save themselves but every single one of them scattered all over the world one at a time gave their lives saying this actually happened the best explanation for the changed lives and the dramatic spread of Christianity is that these men and these women saw and experienced the events described in the gospels especially the resurrection. And then the third thing that we look at as we navigate the problem of the resurrection is Jesus himself. Because let's be honest, the main problem that people have is not the possibility of a resurrection, but it's the person of the resurrection. If we were to make two lists, and in one list we were to look back through history and say, who are the men and women who are the most influential uh, in history, have made a real lasting impact on this world, that were highly regarded by many, even if you don't agree with them, even if I don't agree with them, but, but they, were, they had great impact. You might think of people like Gandhi and Mozart and Da Vinci and Aristotle and Baby Yoda. But no matter what your religious leanings may be, you can't leave Jesus Christ off that list. Then let's make a second list. Look back through history and make a list of all the men and women who claim to be God. There are many, but you don't know their names. And do you know why? Because it's such a ridiculous claim and so easy to refute and debunk that those lunatics are easily forgotten, quickly forgotten. There's only one name at the top of both lists, influence on history and claim to be God. Well, what does this mean? It means that Jesus is not a person to not have an opinion on. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you realize there is no such thing as middle ground or casual follower. 
Uh, those around Jesus who really knew him, they did one of two things. They either worshipped him, surrendered their lives to him, and served him, or they wanted him dead. The magnitude of Jesus' claims and the magnitude of his impact on history and untold numbers of people throughout history and today confront all of us with this thought. If you're not sure about the resurrection, you better not just think the resurrection didn't happen. You better know. This is the problem with the resurrection. There's so much to consider and there's so much at stake. Ask yourself this morning, do I believe that the resurrection is the greatest hoax or the greatest hope? If you're listening in and you're a doubter or a skeptic or a seeker, I hope you're willing to consider the possibility that the resurrection of Jesus Christ deserves a closer look. And men and women much smarter than you and I have done this. They've gone out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that if they could do so, it would unhinge the Christian faith. And they ended up becoming believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So keep asking questions and keep seeking the problem with the resurrection. Secondly, the purpose of the resurrection. What I want to do is I want to look at a story, an event that happened just days before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's in John chapter 12, and I'm reading to you from the NLT. And beginning in verse 20, it says this. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it, and those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. What's happening here? The Greeks, which are God-fearing Gentiles, non-Jews, they've come to the Passover like thousands and thousands of people have to worship. But there was a problem. There was nowhere for them to worship. There was no way in for them. They came to what's known now as Herod's Temple, in Herod's temple, the Gentiles were always on the outside of the inner courts. It was actually turned into more of a shop than a place of worship. They came to worship, but they couldn't actually get in. They were God's presence, God's acceptance. They were so close, but they still felt so far away. And so these Gentiles, they go looking for Jesus, somehow sensing or maybe just hoping that he is the way in. And I think you and I can relate to this human, uh, this human feeling, this human tendency. Because to be human means to, to look for a way in. We're all looking for a way in, a way into the good life, whatever we define the good life to be, a way into freedom, a way into meaning and purpose. And we use all sorts of things to try to get in, relationships, career, success, pleasure, control, respect, status, wealth. But there's a danger And this is what Jesus is referencing when he says in verse 25 that those who love their life in this world will lose it. To love your life doesn't mean to care for yourself. It it means actually to so treasure your own life, to so value and treasure your own vision of the good life above everything else, including above God. It means to give your heart fully and completely to whatever whoever you think can get you in. And the danger 
that Jesus points out in this text is that we will lose our life. And I don't think he's just talking about our natural lives. Because in Matthew 16, 26, when he says something very similar, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul? The Greek word that he uses there for soul is the word psyche, uh, where we get the word psychology and psychiatrist. What Jesus is saying here is that what good is it if you go after the whole world and you think you get it, but you lose yourself in the process? You lose your sense of self. Now, why is that true? Why does that happen? Here's why. Because our identity, my identity, is tangled up in whatever I love most. In other words, you are what you love. Whatever you love most, you serve. It becomes your master. You give yourself to it and you worship it. And you lose yourself, your sense of self, in pursuit of those things and in your love for that thing, that lesser thing. You think it's setting you free, but it's actually enslaving you. It won't get you in. It will only bind you up. And so these Greeks come looking for a way in, and Jesus' reply actually seems really odd. You know, the the disciples of Jesus come and they say, hey, uh, these people want to talk to you. And Jesus basically says, it's time for me to die. That seems like a really weird response. Jesus is saying the time has come. But here's why Jesus said that. Because Jesus knew, he knows that they needed a way in, and that only he could provide that way in, and only through his death and resurrection. And that's why in this same passage, Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection. He talks about the kernel of wheat that is planted in the soil and dies. And unless it does that, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus is saying, unless I die, there's no way in. Jesus will die, but life will come from death. And there will be a way in. Here's what Jesus' death did for you and I. It removed the barrier of sin so that we can be reconciled to God. This is the good news of the gospel, that we can be forgiven of our sins and welcomed into the family of God based on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf or in our place. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived. He's our perfect righteousness. Jesus died the death that we should have died because of our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion against God. But Jesus also rose from the dead, sealing the deal that his payment for our sin was accepted and complete. Keller says it this way, the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. I hope you don't miss it this morning. Jesus Christ paid the price for you, and when he rose from the dead, it meant that his payment was accepted for you. And this is the purpose of the resurrection, to provide you and me a way in. Lastly this morning, what is the power in the resurrection? If the resurrection is true, and I believe it is, if it changes our relationship with God, and I know that it does, then here's the question. How does it change our everyday life? Our Monday through Friday, long work days, dirty diapers, relationship drama, annoying people, cold weather, aging bodies, boots on the ground, life. And I don't want you to miss this. Hear this this morning. The purpose of the resurrection is to get us in. But the power in the resurrection is to get us through. To get us through. And listen, I know that as a world, as a country, as a state, as a community, we're in a tough spot. We're looking for a way through. 
And I know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ can fill our hearts this morning with the hope and truth that there is a way through. Because once you see the truth of what Jesus did and the beauty, not just the truth, but also the beauty, you will then have the strength to get through, to get through anything. In any circumstance, to see the strength to get through doesn't come from within ourselves. The strength to get through doesn't come from our circumstances. The strength to get through won't come from the government. It won't come uh, from outside of ourselves. The strength to get through comes from having our hearts transformed by seeing Jesus sacrifice and having our hearts filled with awe and wonder at the resurrection that Jesus Christ has power over death itself. See, because we have a way in, that has not been secured by things as fragile as my self-esteem, as unreliable as the approval and acceptance of other people, as inconsistent as my self-control and my inner strength, as fleeting as wealth and health and success and fame. Because our way in is not secured by those things, but because our way in is secured by the unchanging, undeserved, perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, And this means our hearts can be steady in any storm, the storms around us and the storms within us. And we can rest and rejoice in all circumstances. There's a way through. And when we look at the resurrection, we are reminded that from the absolute worst came the absolute best. Uh, From defeat came victory. From despair came hope. And from death came life. What the resurrection of Jesus means is that good triumphs over evil. Love finds a way. Light cannot be swallowed up and defeated by darkness. Death does not have the final say. Everything sad someday will come untrue. And according to Revelation 21, someday, listen, someday even death itself will die. I know many of us are home more with our children than normal. My girls are great. But obviously, the more time you spend together, the more opportunity there is to get on each other's nerves and push each other's buttons. And maybe you've had to separate a few fights during this season. And I I, I remember uh, seeing big siblings beat up on little siblings when I was growing up. And what they would do is they would hold them down and they would take, they would grab their hands and they would hit them with their own hands. They would smack themselves with their own hands, and they'd say, why are you hitting yourself? Stop hitting yourself. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe I've just created some trauma for you by reminding you of something. And and when I was thinking of of that scene, I thought, someday death itself is going to die. Someday death, like God himself is going to grab death and just start smacking death across its face with its own hand and saying, why are you doing that to yourself? Why are you doing that to yourself? Because Jesus struck a fatal blow to death. There is a way through because there is a way in, and it's all because of this resurrection event. At the cross, we see the humiliation of our own God, and it keeps us humble. But on Sunday morning, we see the victory of our own God over all the greatest enemies we could ever face, and it keeps us hopeful. I remember when my daughter Caroline was turning six, we put all her gifts out on the breakfast table, and we said, you can open them before you go to school. And she took the first gift, and before she opened it, before she shook it to listen to it, before she did anything, she took the gift, she looked at myself and Aaron, and she said, whatever it is, thanks. Whatever it is, thanks. That is the testimony of all Christians. Whatever it is, whatever's coming, whatever season we're in, we can give thanks 
we can be thankful because we trust the heart of God and we see the life of Jesus. We see the death of Jesus. We see the resurrection of Jesus. So whatever comes tomorrow, whatever come next, comes next week, we look at it and we say, whatever it is, thanks, because we're always hopeful. Listen, there's a way in, there's a way through. And this morning, if you'll consider the resurrection, you can know it's all true.